I was led to believe this was a one-hour special on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think you led yourself to believe that. <laughs> yeah. So it's not one-hour special on Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm afraid, Jude. It is my sad duty to report. That is actually Harry Potter. <laughs> oh! I think we were doing Harry Potter Goes Fash. Yes. And the yes. I tried to watch it yesterday. And I fell asleep, like, within, like, ten minutes. So I was just like, I can't do this. Okay. Um, so I tried it again this morning, and then, like, ten minutes in, I was like, oh, Richard from Lost is in this. This is interesting. Yeah. Oh, Tony Blair is in this. This is interesting. So finally, I managed to watch the whole thing. <laughs> oh, nice. No. I mean, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was solid. So we can we can talk about that. Hang on. Let me search real politics, Stormfront. Yeah, you might have, <laughs> you want to you might want to have a look. Because they do have a lot of UK posters on their forums. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything, luckily. Oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. I remember when my, my documentary went out and it made it into the Stormfront. Oh, right. God. Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And, of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. are the hard left, What's Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are in the, you know, I, ascendancy I, within the within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were all right to right wing. The hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position, hard sort of left, dist- hard left to the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, 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 hard left,
Jude. Jude uh, in London. From London. <laughs> Jude in London. In London. From... In London. My bad. My bad. Yeah, it's our friend Jude Wanga, who you will remember from our hit episodes last season. Legitimate Can we just concerns. Do that because my name has a short A, not a long A. Wanga. Yes. Awesome. That's a very good pronunciation, like straight and strong. Okay, Jude Wanger, who appeared on our episodes Legitimate Concerns and (laughs) Manifesto 2, Return of the Concerns, which I I believe the second of which she named. (laughs) I don't know why you let me do that. Sorry, Yaya, you're hosting the show. Carry on. I can't do that. (laughs) That's your job, man. I just chime in with the occasional yeah, Uh uh-huh. Yeah, and then laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the male did, after all, bill you as my accomplice, I think. <laughs> Sounds likely. I am the third member of the group. Yeah. Yeah. And there's only three of us, remember, so that means you're last. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you thought you should entered another member and, like, sent them on a wild goose chase to try and find the elusive member of <laughs> Our seventh member, Jolian. <laughs> I don't know who the sixth member is. That's another mystery for them to solve. But yeah, we've got a packed itinerary today for you. We're going to be talking a bit about movies. Because last time when we did our glorious return episode, we were like, okay, what movies have we watched? And we just handed it yeah. over to Tom <laughs> to talk about Dunkirk. And that was the entire rest of the episode. We catch missed up... out a few things there, yeah. Yeah, we wanted to catch up on... What's pop culture yeah on, on, on the pop culture and also a little bit of the politics as well because we know of course. we know that's what you like but yeah we've got jude here a trusty comrade in tow sadly tom can't make it but he has sent me a message stephen smith is a legend in capital letters <laughs> followed by stephen smith come on our podcast that is all X. Internet is not good here. So I, I presume he, he's the latest member of the team to be imprisoned. I, I don't know. Do they do, like, you know how they give you, like, one call when you get arrested? Can you opt for, like, one DM instead? <laughs> or, or can you just phone in and do an episode of a podcast with that one call? Well, I mean, Laura managed to do a good 10 minutes from Guantanamo Bay last time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, she can't make it today, but next week she'll have her internet back and it'll all be good. But Jude is going to make up for, like, the majority of our team. I'm going to try. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> so what do we want to talk about first? We got, we got movies, we got music, and we got politics on the agenda. Which would be a good place to start? Anything's good. Maybe start with the politics. Okay. So Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equality, Sarah Champion, wrote an article today. And this article appeared in The Sun and <laughs> was very bad. And I'm going to hand over to Jude to explain why it was so bad. Basically, she wrote an article on child abuse gangs and basically posited that it's a primarily Pakistani issue, basically implying that child sex abuse is predominantly being carried out by Asian men and Muslim men. How many dog whistles in this article I can't even get into. It's pretty awful. It's completely distorted the discussion that actually needs to be had about child sexual abuse 
And it actually contradicts things that she herself has said previously, where she correctly pointed out that this isn't about race or culture, and it's wrong to infer that, because these men aren't targeting these girls because they're white, they're targeting them because they're vulnerable, and that is the key thing to child sexual abuse, is that Mm. paedophiles choose their victims because they're vulnerable and they are in positions of vulnerability. And, Mm. you know, giving the police an out for failing to do their duty in protecting these girls by claiming that they were afraid of being seen as racist. I mean, there's no evidence to support that statement because there's no fear of being racist in any institution. There is no fear of racism in education. There's no fear of racism in the workplace. There's no fear of racism within the judiciary. So to say that the police are afraid of being racist and that's why they're not protecting these young girls from being abused is just a dog whistle. That's all it is. It's Um, never stopped them before, has it? It has never stopped them before. And also it distorts the entire discussion on child sexual abuse because a failure to correctly tackle child sexual abuse isn't just happening to these white girls who are being targeted by these gangs. You have the victims groups who are part of the National inquiry into child sexual abuse who are on record as saying that the investigation the so-called independent investigation is not fit for purpose the shirley oak survivors association pulled out of the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse saying that it was a stage managed event so you have the establishment who have long been covering up child sexual abuse so to suddenly say that the reason it's not being tackled in these specific scandals that are coming up is because of race is just absolutely stupid there's no other thing that it's dangerous stupidity and she should really be reprimanded by the Potiphar because it's an incitement to violence in my view because if you look at the people who are championing what she said today it's just the far right and people who read Daily Express and who are looking for extra reasons to heap anti-immigrant sentiments and more racism and xenophobia into this country where it's not needed so someone needs to have a serious word with her and that's just aside from the fact that not only have you written this diatribe but you've written it for the sun yeah so you knew what you were doing because if this was about a genuine concern you wouldn't have taken it to a paper that you know will flagrantly use it to incite anti-immigrants yeah uh, surely she knew her audience yeah it's just absolutely grateful there are people who have spoken much better on this than me ash sarka from navarra did a really good thread on why going down this road of assuming that cultural race has anything to do with child sexual abuse is really dangerous but you know even like just the statistics just don't back it up the majority of people arrested for child sexual abuse are white men the thing that all of these cases have in common is that the perpetrators are overwhelmingly men we had a group that was arrested quite recently for abusing babies and they were all white but she didn't say anything about that Mm, yeah so you think there should be some kind of disciplinary action and i'm inclined to agree with you there because i think this is really shocking right down to the vehicle she chose for her concerns her legitimate concerns, not really, not really legitimate, <laughs> was obviously the son. So, I mean, on every level, I'm pretty shocked by this. I had a fairly positive view of Sarah Champion before. But do you think she should be sacked from a shadow cabinet or she should have the whip removed from her as a result of this? I think this was bad enough if it had come from a backbencher. To come from a shadow cabinet member is absolutely appalling. And some kind of action does need to be taken, whether it's removal of the whip or whether she's from the shadow cabinet i don't really care which one it is 
is, but something needs to be done so that the Labour Party show that they don't support this kind of dog whistle attitude to tackling these issues, because all it's going to do is actually inflame and endanger communities. Because one thing that is completely missed when we talk about these gangs in places like Rochdale and Rotherham is that the Asian girls who are targeted by these gangs are almost completely erased from the narrative, completely. When we talk about child sexual abuse, young white victims are more likely to report and so they're more likely to be present in the statistics. But children of colour are less likely to report child sexual abuse, especially when it's happening within family or from somebody that they know. So to kind of put this down as something to do with race and culture and erase these other victims from the narrative is so dangerous and does nothing to tackle child sexual abuse at all, but actually allows it to continue underground in the victims that society aren't looking for. And just the kind of bitter irony of this is that it's the shadow minister for women inequalities. Yeah. <laughs> just don't know what she was thinking. It's appalling. It is really, really appalling. And, you know, someone has to say something publicly to say that we do not agree with this. This is not a statement that reflects how Labour is viewing this issue. And, you know, I, I really do think she does. She does need to be reprimanded on it. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, on top of all those very well made points, it's just patently, easily provable that it's not because of Islam or whatever. I mean, John Wayne Gacy, he was white as anything. He was not Muslim. Yeah, well, I think Jude tweeted something about how were all those sort of political paedophilia scandals, were they BAME people? Were they Muslims? I just wanted to know, the Westminster paedophile ring, were they Pakistani? Or Jimmy Savile suddenly Pakistani, is he? Yeah. The children's Mm. home, that was in Pakistan, was it? The Roman Catholic Church, was that in Pakistan? Uh, (laughs) Come on. A little bit of background on Sarah Champion for our listeners. She's not readily associated with the left of the party, is she? But you wouldn't necessarily think of her as on the kind of reactionary right-wing fringe, which is why she's been able to assimilate so well into the Shadow Cabinet, and she was one of the biggest, most vocal champions of Labour's manifesto. Although, an interesting thing about her that we've pointed out on the show before, is she did the thing that Larry David did with Saturday Night Live back in the 70s, where she quit quit Corbyn's shadow cabinet and then like a couple of days later she was sort of like oh was that a, a bad idea and then just went back to work <laughs> although Larry David to be fair he just walked back in I don't think he asked politely for his job no it's the part where I point out that I've actually never seen an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm tragic well Sad. yeah Sad. What an amazing show to be missing out on. Is this also the part where I reaffirm my belief that Seinfeld is not funny at all? I like Seinfeld, but I don't yeah. think it's as good as Curb. No, no, not at all. Give it a go. I'll give it a go. But yeah, this is just so disappointing, seeing this from Sarah Champion, because she was one who I'd developed a quite positive opinion on. I'd seen her in a documentary from before the Corbyn era, like Inside Westminster or something, where you saw her as a kind of new backbencher, trying to find her voice in this sort of like very elitist institution. And yeah, she came off really well in that, like a proper kind of like underdog and very likable. But <laughs> yeah, apparently she's got these like fucking Tommy Robinson, Katie Hopkins fucking views on Pakistani people. So yeah, that's a, lovely. That's a bummer. You'd think that she would look at her mentions and just go, oh shit, I may have fucked this one. <laughs> What's the ratio like? I mean, like it's 
half, you need to apologise to Nigel Farage for now finally saying what he's been saying for ages, which for me would have been the first sign that I have completely fucked up what I wanted to say. Yeah. And then the other half is, well, at least you're on board now. You just need to mention that they're Muslim. And then there's a load of other ones going, well said. And then the rest of us going, have you lost your fucking mind? Uh, <laughs> so she seems to have decided to stop looking at Twitter, I think, because she's not actually replied to many people, except for this one imam who said that they were going to preach about it at sermon. And, and she said, I know that there has been some. The thing that burns me is that that imam didn't have to send that tweet and he probably felt compelled to do so to kind of make a show that the Muslim community is taking this seriously but the music community have always been taking this seriously yeah. and they yeah. shouldn't have to do that to placate her criticisms which are based on inaccuracies and right-wing myths well it's the same thing of sort of like oh when will the muslims stand up and condemn terrorism and it's <laughs> like they fucking have been doing it for years actually on the ground in the shit actually affected on a day-by-day basis by it well, i'm fucking up here yeah think of the chechens <laughs> <laughs> ah god Sorry, I fucked up and just lost my train of thought. Take a moment. Breathe in. Collect myself. <laughs> and get back in the room. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Is there anything else political, actually, that we want to mention while we're here? You yeah, said yeah. you didn't want to make a big point about it, but the Donald Trump transcript... <laughs> Yes. Uh, I have actually. What is up with that, man? Sorry, I've been on a political kind of fast, largely. (laughs) So I've actually just missed all of the weird shit that he's been doing for a while until he decided to start stoking the flames of a nuclear war with a January Capricorn, as if those people actually give a shit about anything. What is the transcript thing? Okay, so a couple of transcripts were leaked by somebody from the White House, some kind of senior source, which detail two conversations that Trump had in the first week of his presidency. So one was with the Mexican president, Pino Nieta, and one was with the Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turner. And Trump's syntax is so fucking weird written down. (laughs) Oh my god, when you just see a straight transcript not like embellished at all to make it easier for readers, it's like, okay. I mean, fuck, who knows what a real politic transcript would look like. (laughs) No, it would probably look really disjointed as well. But fascinating stuff. That's what I gotta say. Like, um... Yeah, I think probably one of my favourite lines was when he was talking to Turnbull and Trump said, why do you discriminate against boats? (laughs) (laughs) Boat lives matter. Uh... (laughs) I mean, that was great because Trump just did not understand the Australian immigration policy at all. (laughs) It's awful because for the first time just reading this conversation... I had that kind of like, oh god, well at least the moderate conservatives aren't like this. Because he's, <laughs> because I've never <laughs> thought that before, because I fucking hate them. Because they're just snakes. Yeah. Any conservative who can pass in a non-conservative setting is one you've got to fucking worry about. Anyone who can survive for five minutes outside the fucking like Eaton bun tasting club or whatever. <laughs> like the David Cameron sorts, who could sort of put on a show for just long enough. Turnbull's one of those. He's a moderate 
Conservative from the Australian Liberal Party. His predecessor, <laughs> who was also a Liberal MP, Tony Abbott, was a lot more reactionary than him. And Turnbull's just some kind of like businessman shithead, basically, made a lot of money and then went into Parliament as a Conservative because yeah, the Australian uh, Liberal Party is their Conservative Party. Which would be very confusing for Americans. He's just trying to explain to Trump why uh, Trump <laughs> needs to take a few refugees in under 2,000, I think. And Trump's just like, no, no, this is, this is terrible. I can't. There was points where he was saying, you don't even have to take any. We're just asking that you vet them and then yeah. take any that you want. Yeah. And he just kept going on and on. Every other sentence by Trump was, oh, I'll do it, I guess. But this is going to make me look so bad. And just <laughs> repeating that ad infinitum. <laughs> He's, he keeps saying, I can't live with this. Yeah. I can't live with this. He's such a fucking diva. But he's just like, Malcolm, why is this so important? I do not understand. This is going to kill me. I am the world's greatest person that does not want to let people into the country. <laughs> what does that sentence even mean? <laughs> it's narcissism times abject stupidity. <laughs> like, I was watching Sharknado 5, also known as best film of 2017. And, and it, and it There's five of them now. As the shark t- tornado dislodged one of the pods from the Millennium Wheel. Man, global that, warming, it's the, just getting worse and worse, isn't it? Well, no, but the, the plot to Sharknado 5 Keep is infinitely me. more realistic. <laughs> than if someone had told last year that Donald Trump would become president. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's another great bit, and, and Chapo Trap House have already done this, so we don't want to just be ripping off Chapo, but this stuff is so good, I can't not mention when Trump... It's is, juicy material. He's, he's just complaining, he's just bitching and moaning, it's so pathetic. He's like, look... I spoke to Putin, Merkel, Abe of Japan. What is that? How do you... Abe? Abe. Abe of Japan. I was Abe Simpson. But you know he pronounced it Abe. So... Yeah, he totally did, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> to France today. This was my most unpleasant call. Because I will be honest with you. I hate taking these people. I guarantee you they are bad. And, and Turnbull's explained that they're definitely not criminals. Australia just doesn't let people in who come on boats. And then Trump's just like not getting it. He's like, I guarantee you they are bad. That is why they are in prison right now. It's like they're in a refugee detention yeah. centre. And, Trump's and why like, won't you take them if they're so good, huh? Yeah. And Trump's like, they are not going to be wonderful people who go on to work for the local milk people. <laughs> yeah. I, I, at this point, it's like when you have your drunk uncle that nobody wants to invite to Christmas dinner, but you have to because he's your mum's younger brother and he's had a rough time of it and the kids have left him, the wife have left him and nobody else speaks it. <laughs> so you invite Christmas and then he drinks all the fucking booze and he goes on a rant of whatever he's read in the newspaper and you're all sitting there going, will this ever fucking end? That's <laughs> basically Trump's presidency. Speaking of how things end, the Turnbull conversation concludes on a pretty juicy nugget for your Louise Menches out there, your Eric Garlands, your Luke Akehursts. He says, I have had it. I have been making these calls all day, and this is the least pleasant call all day. 
Putin was a pleasant call. Russia. Russia. Yeah. I think the last thing that I picked up on was the fact that he thinks that Russia expelling their diplomats equals them firing their diplomats. So Donald Trump genuinely thinks that other countries can fire U.S. government officials. <laughs> yeah, he was like, we wanted to lower the fucking payroll anyway. Yeah, small government. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> so basically, Putin can fire people that you've hired. That's what the fact, Donald Trump. So if Putin decided tomorrow, I don't like your secretary of state, he goes. <laughs> Like what? Where? Where? Like, does he just like not stop and think? Hang on, that doesn't sound right. It's like Homer Simpson has become fucking president. (laughs) This is absolutely absurd. It drives me. I have to stop reading about Trump because either he's going to kill us all before Black Panther comes out, and I will be furious. And I (laughs) said. If we die in a nuclear war before I get to see Black Panther, I will go down to hell and speak to Hades personally, and I will find him. And I will have my revenge. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to Satan that I will do that. Yeah, I mean, I've tried to avoid all this Trump bullshit because, I mean, I find it so, like, nauseating. But then when I finally read these transcripts, I was just like, no, actually, this is totally, like, my kind of thing. This is just, like, a fucking episode of Decker or something. Just, like, <laughs> the stupid parody that Tim Heidecker does of, like, some badass kind of, like, right-wing CIA agent who always just saves the day. And he's always just mumbling, like, he'll kill the bad guy and then he'll just be like, uh, this is why, uh, um, uh, uh, America is, uh, the b- b- the best, something like that, <laughs> and and literally that's just what Trump's like. He's always fronting. He's always trying to act the part, but he just doesn't have the capability to like string a fucking sentence together. <laughs> yeah, what what really struck me about his conversation with uh, is it Nieto, the me- yeah, Mexican Nieto. president? Not only did he just keep begging, he was so pathetic. He just kept telling him. All right, all right. Look, we'll we'll continue to talk about it. Just don't tell anybody that you don't want to help build this wall. We'll keep talking about it in private. You just tell your people we're still talking, and he's just begging and pleading. (laughs) Just don't help me. I think my favorite thing that I found today is Goldie Taylor found a tweet from Donald Trump where he's basically saying that Obama's tanking in the polls, which means he's obviously going to have to try and start a war. And it's like, there's literally, there is a tweet for everything (laughs) and polls are starting to look really bad for obama looks like he'll have to start a war or major conflict to win don't put it past him and it's like dude dude really come on yeah i mean trump is historically unpopular in american terms i i want cryogenically frozen just so that they can thaw me out in a hundred years and I can go to school and study Trump. <laughs> like, Alongside I, I, all I those mutated roaches. That teaches the Trump era. I mean, it, it would be great, like, reading these transcripts and stuff, but I get a sense that researching all the sort of emboldenment of fascism <laughs> might just get a bit much, just sort of, like, in the film Imperium that we'll talk about in a minute, where Daniel Radcliffe just has, like, the protocols of the Elders of Zion spinning around his head when he tries to sleep at night because he's immersed himself so deeply in all this fash bullshit. He's gone full fash. Yeah, exactly. He'll never go full fash. Trump's approval ratings are historically low for an American president. However, you know who is now more unpopular in their country? 
than Trump is in his. Emmanuel Macron! Yes! <laughs> the Sun King, the golden boy of every centrist's fevered dreams. The Jupiterian <laughs> model of ruling doesn't yeah. require having good poll ratings. Oh no, of course not. <laughs> Macron is just plummeting in the polls and good because he is a real piece of work. I can't stand him. Beautiful. And obviously he's less popular than Corbyn as well. All these fuckers are. That's the great thing. I think my favourite part of his ratings tanking is all of the centrists going, oh, but he has such a tough job to do. And I was like, who told him to go to war with the unions? Yeah. Literally, who sat there and said to him, you know what'll make you popular in France? Go to war with the unions. They love that. Come on! This is a nation that lives to strike. The only thing they have going is their staunch support for the union. And you thought, that's going to be the place to start. That, there, right there, right there. Yeah, well, you know, good luck to him with his fucking scabbing and monarchist revanchism. But, anyway, I think we should conclude the politics segment with Donald Trump's harrowing account of the drug trade. (laughs) And we have the drug lords in Mexico that are knocking the hell out of our country. And this is him telling the Mexican president about the drug war. They are sending (laughs) drugs to Chicago, Los Angeles, and to New York. Up in New Hampshire, I won New Hampshire because New Hampshire is a drug-infested den. I I wonder if he said that on the campaign trail. Probably fucking did, to be fair. It's coming from the southern border. So we have a lot of problems with Mexico, farther than the economic problem. We are becoming a drug-addicted nation. (laughs) And most of the (laughs) drugs are coming from Mexico, or certainly from the southern border. But I will say this, you have that problem too. I mean, the drugs are coming from from Mexico, so... (sighs) You have some pretty tough hombres in Mexico (laughs) that you may need help with, and we are willing to help you with that big league. But they have to be knocked out, and you have not done a good job of knocking them out. (laughs) We have a massive drug problem, where kids are becoming addicted to drugs, because drugs are being sold for less money than candy, because there is so much of it. I wish. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking hell. Hook me up. Give me the fucking number, man. (laughs) Because drugs are being sold for less money than candy, because there is so much of it. So we have to work together to knock that out. And I know this is a tough group of people, and maybe your military is afraid of them, but our military <laughs> is not afraid of them, and we will help you with that 100%, because it is out of control. Totally out of control. Now, getting back to the taxes for a second. Then oh, <laughs> <laughs> he just starts boasting about how many tax powers he's got. Yeah, he's like, I have he's threatening him with Tremendous taxation powers. For trade and for other reasons, far greater than anybody understands. The powers of taxation are tremendous for the President of the United States. And if you study that, you will see what I mean. He is absurd. He is absurd. I actually think he might be fighting the one-man fight against the drugs trade on his own by just shuffling it all up his fucking nose, which would actually go to <laughs> all the shits he comes up with. He's just absurd. And every time he speaks, I just look at America and go, for centuries now, you will never be able to have any more <laughs> moral high ground on who you've chosen <laughs> to be president. 
ever again. All the goodwill that was built up by Obama and Clinton and JFK, done. Done, done, done. All fucking destroyed in six months. Congratulations. He's basically, from coming from this gilded but largely liberal milieu, he's been able to adopt the kind of airs and graces of, you know, somebody who doesn't just fucking, like, belong in the gutter. I think the thing with Trump is that for a lot of people, they assumed because of the money he had and the kind of circles that he socialised in and the people he was around, that he would naturally be more of a liberal. Mm. But like you've pointed out, throughout his life, there have been instances which should have told people this guy is a fucking hard Republican. And he's only a liberal because it makes his life easier to be so for business purposes. But now he's not in the business of business really anymore. And he was able to switch seamlessly and people didn't take it seriously enough because all of this other stuff like the stuff with the central park five had been kind of forgiven and you know it's really interesting because we're about to talk about movies and tv but the thing that really catapulted donald trump was the writer's strike of 2007 because if the writers hadn't gone on strike in America, that was kind of really launched reality TV. That's when The Apprentice came out to fill up for the shows that had no scripts to be oh, written. Shit! So, he... so if the writers, if the writers Guild of America hadn't gone on strike, he may never have become as big as he was to the oh point. Oh my god! Where... He's just the kind of guy who would use scabbing like that as just a kind of perfect opportunity to yeah. <laughs> uh, advance his own not career. Only, not only did we lose Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip to the writers' strike, but we also gained a uh, Donald Trump presidency. R.I.P. one of Aaron Sorkin's finest works. Honestly, I'm so <laughs> upset. It was so good. I haven't actually seen it. Do they really oh, talk a lot in it? It's the best thing he did. Like People will say that was the West Wing, but there would be neoliberals. Uh, <laughs> the West Wing? Don't you mean the rule book for participating in modern politics? <laughs> to become a political commentator, you must A, watch the West Wing box set, B, read the Harry Potter series, C, begin writing. <laughs> Just be a fucking dickhead generally. <laughs> Excuse me while I go and cradle my box set of the West Wing. <laughs> um, it's not even that good. I mean, there are episodes, and there are some good series, but like you just at the end of it, you just think this this was like three seasons too long as a show. I'm putting this out there. I don't know if I've ever seen the West Wing in my life. I did <laughs> see one episode in a history class years ago. That oh, was it. What did you make of it? Uh, pff, this was in middle school, <laughs> um, so a long time ago. It was okay, I guess, as a political drama, but, you know, nothing special. They were talking. No, I yeah. think what <laughs> people thought about the West Wing was it gave them an insight into the machinations of the White House. Like, if you're mm. a political wonk, the kind of thing that you'd enjoy because you'll understand some of the terminology or whatever and you get a better understanding of how American politics works if you're yeah. a complete newbie to it. So I think for a lot of people it's a nice way for them to understand how the White House works, especially coming off 
the Clinton and Bush eras, in the middle of the Clinton and Bush eras, it was a way for people to kind of make better sense of all the stuff that was happening around them. Kind of in a way how people are kind of fascinated by House of Cards now. They both serve very similar purposes. And um, it's also but... worth saying that the kind of centrist West Wing fans that we're talking about were formed ideologically in... Sure, those eras, yeah. Yeah, in the era of the end of history, when British politics, British centre-left politics was becoming heavily Atlanticized, and you could kind of trace that back to the campaign that Peter Mandelson ran for Labour in the 1987 election that was widely seen as a very slick, very efficient campaign, but didn't work in terms of winning. I think one of my favourite trivia facts about American and British politics kind of coinciding is the fact that Joe Biden's run for the presidency in the 80s was scuppered because he copied a speech from none other than Labour flop Neil Kinnock. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Oh my god! Plagiarise Neil fucking Kinnock. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to think which Kinnock speech now because I mean there's a few uh, classics. We're all right! We're all right! It was the... Grotesque chaos irrelevant to the real needs. It would have been the one where he talks about his background. What, so oh, Joe was Biden was the just one... like, I grew up it was in, the a, one where in a Welsh mining town. It's the Kinnock speech where he was talking about how he's the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to get to university. Oh, and how Glennis was the first woman in her generation to get to university. And, and then Biden basically was like, why is it that Joe Biden is the first? in his family to ever go to university it was like a sh- it was a straight rip-off and it <laughs> completely torpedoed his presidential run like totally and that was the oh year papa bush or yeah. poppy as he's known <laughs> um, <laughs> going up against oh i can't remember who ended up running against that year dukakis that's the one yeah Michael there's dukakis. a there's a whole series about presidential races which used to be on netflix which talks about the different presidential races through time. So like JFK, Dukakis, Bush, and all these other ones. And there's got like great anecdotes and Kevin Spacey narrates all of them. Um, okay. And they look back at the ones that, like Andrew Jackson's run for the presidency yeah. and stuff like that as well. Going way back. Um, um, but yeah, so I remember reading that and just thinking, why would you, of all the people to play it's Neil Pockett. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen a documentary called The War Room, which is about Clinton's 1992 run in which he defeated the incumbent George H.W. Bush? And it's a really good documentary. Is it the one that was directed by Chris Hegedus? Yeah, it's directed by Chris Hegedus and D.A. Pennybaker, who did the Bob Dylan documentary Don't Look Back. Um, <laughs> was that a, a little groan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you clock how in your first episode on the show I put a Bob Dylan song at the end? Yes, I did. Like <laughs> live Bob Dylan as well. Oh, he's but not good. He is very good. <laughs> Jack, we've had this conversation before, and I've told you. Don't you think it's weird how other people sing Bob Dylan songs better than Bob Dylan sings Bob Dylan songs? The thing is, just I'm just not sure if they do. Like that, I'm <laughs> never sure they've they've got that feeling. You know, there's, but don't get me wrong. There's some great covers. There's obviously Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower, The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, many, many, many more. But I see them as complementing Dylan's originals. You know, as a, as a new spin on something that was already pretty much perfect. Let's not do this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be here for hours. The War Room.
yeah, as you say, Chris Hegedus co-directed it with D.A. Penny Baker, and it's largely about Clinton's advisors, George Stephanopoulos, who's now like some MSNBC dickhead, and James Carville, who is now like, I don't know, some other sort of dickhead, I'm not really sure what he's up to. These people have terrible politics, they're not good people. He's just they're... like a meat personality now, he just pops up on like CNN and stuff here and there to talk yeah. shit. But they are really interesting to watch, especially Carville. He's got this kind of like southern gent style to him. He's very, very eloquent. And yeah, he kind of doesn't suffer fools gladly. But at times as well, he comes off like very warm and approachable and as a real canny political operator. So he emerges as the real star of that film. And yeah, I'd really recommend that movie, actually. I guess we talk movies and music now. Yes. Yeah. So, movies and music, what what about that, eh? There are things that there exist. Things. So what have we watched recently? Well, Imperium's a big film for me, and I think you, Jack, as well, I don't know. And I think Jude as well. I have watched it, yes. We all watched a film from last year called Imperium, starring every Blairite's hero, Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> My personal hero, Tony Collette. Oh, yeah, yeah, Tony Collette is great. It's great to see her in the movie. It's a film directed by Daniel Raugus. Raugusis. Written and directed. Didn't butcher that at all. (laughs) Written and directed by Daniel Raugusis, who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. So he's obviously an up and coming, emergent young director. And I'm fairly impressed by this film. The plot is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe, playing very much against type, is an FBI agent, and he needs to infiltrate this group of neo-Nazis, and hijinks ensues. Hijinks does indeed ensue. He sort of investigates various people. He starts off at the grassroots, on the street-level thugs. Exactly, just with these kind of, like, skinheads, fucking thugs, yeah. And... Yeah, he, he sort of ingratiates them. There's a tense moment when they notice he's wearing a pair of... Levi's. Uh, Levi's, yeah. <laughs> they're like, what are you wearing these Jew jeans for? And he, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he comes up with some proper Nazi-friendly story for it. He's like, my brother gave them to me before I went off to fight in the war. Or something. <laughs> my white brother. My I found brother. that film really uncomfortable. What, that scene or that film in general? I found some of the parts of that film really, really uncomfortable. But, like, that scene was really weird. I remember Daniel Radcliffe when he was on, I think it was Victoria Derbyshire, and he was talking about how Hollywood is racist. And I think I remember him saying something about when he was doing this role about how he really struggled to actually use racial epithets as part of the role. And (laughs) and it does come across watching the film. I never fully buy his character because when he has to infiltrate them, he doesn't say the words with the conviction of the other actors. And I don't Mm. know if that's just because he's a shit actor or because he truly struggled to wrap his head around those words and to say them. Loads of people have played neo-Nazis before. Edward Furlong in American History X just like completely kills it. Oh my Even God, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained, he talked about how he found some of the scripts really, really hard to say. But when you watch the film, it comes out very, very naturally. But with Daniel Radcliffe, there was always that disconnect where he's not quite pulling this off. But it was I, really disturbing. 
I guess there are sort of two levels to it because he's playing someone who's playing a role. So he's, <laughs> he would be trying to convey that the character isn't entirely comfortable with the racist shit he's saying. So I always found there was a kind of element of tension to those scenes where it's like, are the actual fascists going to see through this? Are they going to hear that there is this lack of conviction in his voice? So as a kind of narrative device, I thought that kind of worked for me. Yeah, like, you know, when they're at the march and he spots the black guy who's like, Nate, 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 and he just tells him to, like, I can't remember what he said, but he calls him the N-word. And mm. it's like, that seemed like a bit not to 100 for someone who's a genuine racist. You would have just told him to fuck off. You didn't really need to go with the N-word there as well. And I was wondering if the people who were marching with him would pick up on that, but they seemed, like, completely oblivious. Yeah, I'm not sure how well the march scene came across. You got to see Antifa briefly there, didn't you? Yeah, it's the heroes. Causing some trouble. I mean, that could be a fairly realistic depiction. I'm, I'm not sure. I thought it was. I mean, they did kind of... I don't know if this was a deliberate thing that they did, but they did kind of make the Antifa to look even more menacing in the film. Just like these brute anti-fascists who will absolutely batter the absolute fucking shit out of you. Which yeah. was great for me, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Thinking, I don't know if it always plays out like this entirely in real life. Because, no. Like, some of these Nazis will really go hammer and tongs for it and they're as up for a fight and won't always come off second best. And it's great when they do, but I wasn't sure if that was an entirely accurate depiction of how all of these marches end up. Yeah, I mean, I guess they did show a few of the Nazis were kind of actively inciting the rage. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think another thing is that because we're sort of seeing it from... There's almost a kind of exploitation element to it where they're kind of like, this is what things are like from the point of view of this, like, Nazi group. This is how things look when you're on the inside. Kind of like a Laurie Penny article. So I guess that could be another device to sort of ramp up the tension. It's like when you're a Nazi... Obviously, a lot of people do hate you for good reason, and some of them might genuinely be out to get you. So I almost saw that as another thing to illustrate how fucked up this mission was for Daniel Radcliffe's character, where it's like, and he's got to deal with this as well. I think for me, because it was quite clear that this was kind of borrowing off American History Act, it was really hard for me to not compare it to that. And I thought, going back undercover as well, the whole point of it, it was obviously to show how that white nationalist world operates and one thing that I think it did do really really well was to kind of show the different subsections in the far right where you've got the street ones who are kind of liability to the people who have higher or more sinister motives in a way so a lot of the times we do tend to focus on the street racists and like the street violence of it but it's actually the ones who have that veneer of respectability who are infinitely more dangerous and obviously the parallels with what's happening in America right now is unavoidable where you've got the alt-right who are propping up the people who are actually able to do the most damage to like in with like within the Republican Party and, and the president himself. For respectable racists. Yeah. The they've got the Keir Starmer haircut and they've yeah. got these kind of crackpot theories that yeah. are sort so, of pseudo-intellectual. Exactly. So initially Nate has to infiltrate at the street level, but he has to work his way up. And as he does, you know, even when he meets the guy who wants to do the attack in the end, who says to him, I never saw you as the type to have like the skinhead and all of that and it just goes to show that even within the far right they still look down on the ones that they actually need to carry out their diabolical plans 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how he got into all these different levels of the fascist movement. Like you said, street level, and then there was the guy with the compound, and then at the end there's that leaderless resistance guy. So you see all the different flavors of Nazi. Well, there was the kind of Alex Jonesy sort of guy yeah. as well. But, you know, he was a very successful broadcaster, and he's kind of portrayed as a real snake oil salesman, a proper huckster. Mm. He doesn't really believe a word he's saying. He's just making some coin, which is incidentally what Alex Jones is claiming in his custody battle at the moment. Yeah, I think the scene where he goes to the FBI himself to kind of turn in <laughs> Nate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and basically just sell them all out and say, look, I'm just here for the entertainment. I don't actually believe any of this crap, but this guy here is talking about stuff that's really worrying and you need to talk to him and leave me the fuck alone and leave me out of it and all of this other stuff. And mm. that was quite brilliantly done because it shows that within that far right movement there are people who will turn on the rest of them without a moment's hesitation because they're not in it for the same reasons some of them are mm. there to profit from the street racists and like the lower level ones and they're happy to just be along for the ride and they keep just enough distance from the nitty gritty to protest their innocence when shit goes down and I thought that was actually quite well done they just showed this kind of cross section of the fascist community where you see the skinhead thugs you see the Steve Bannon style sued who ultimately proves to be the guy who's really dangerous he's got the real terrorist ambitions for dude who's like well you know I came to the ideology through the books <laughs> intellectual fascism which kind of reminds me of that Blair quote where he's like I came to socialism through Marxism it's like, uh, did he fuck? Alright then. And of course, yeah, you've got the kind of opportunistic fucking bandwagon jumpers who are just raking some cash. And yeah, I thought it actually was a decent movie. It was a solid, compelling thriller. And if it was the director's first feature film, then that's impressive, I think. I also think it's impressive that Daniel Radcliffe keeps taking really weird roles. Because he could just do bullshit. I mean, he's not your yeah, typical he... leading man, but he's famous enough that he could just be in mainstream films. He but doesn't just not... want to be Harry Potter, does he? <laughs> nah, he was in that fucking farting corpse film with Paul Dano. I think he might have played the farting corpse in it, I'm not sure. <laughs> he, he also did the, the Woman in White as well, which... Black, was... wasn't it? Black, yeah. Uh, the woman oh, was in... there a sequel? No, 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 it was the Woman in Black. Okay, alright. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which was not good, only because it's one of those plays that it can't be adapted for the screen because it loses a lot of what makes the play so great. So when you go to watch the play, there's a part where the entire theatre is in darkness and you kind of feel like or see the ghost go behind you and you can't replicate that for the screen yeah. you have to be in the theatre for that so I think I felt like the film lost a lot of that but it was okay I find adaptations of plays to the screen usually tend to not be very good anyway yeah but steering this back to Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> yes. I, I mean like but he's done a lot of stage stuff as well so yeah he has yeah. when he was I can't Equus? remember if this was yes Equus the famous play about a weird teenage boy who likes fucking horses <laughs> I went to see that did you? I did. Because it was at the Richmond Theatre and I was working in Richmond at the time. So I saw the Daniel Radcliffe run and I saw the Alfie Allen run. Oh, wow. It was Because I remember it was a big deal. They had a thing in The Guardian. It was like, oh, he gets his knob out on stage and there's a he horse did. and it's Harry Potter. <laughs> and I've seen a film based on Equus directed by Sidney Lumet from 1977, which I actually think is pretty good. I, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I mean, yeah, that could have been a good play, and it's a kind of uh, it's a good risk to have taken. I mean, it's a shame they didn't mm. make a film of that with him in it. I mean, depending on how you see it. But he's done other interesting stuff, like he did that TV series on Sky, A Young Doctor's Notebook with John Hamm, which is set in Russia around the time of the revolution. I really liked that. I thought it was just kind of really funny, dry humour. He's cool. the least irritating of the Harry Potter actors, it has to be said, of like all, like the main cast. He uh, is. Sure, sure. <laughs> he's the only one, I think, who actually has not necessarily the range, but the ability to adapt to do different types of films somewhat convincingly. Like, he'll be able to carve out a kind of a semi-decent career. And I think what he's doing, really, is kind of following the Elijah Wood model, where you go yeah. from an actor to doing independent movies and not necessarily needing to have box office his hits to prolong your career like i like elijah wood a lot i, yeah, I think i, I love elijah like... wood. i think he's amazing yeah. and I think a lot of people purely remember him for lord of the rings and why wouldn't there it's a great trilogy but that's almost the anomaly in his cv because he doesn't mm. really do big blockbuster movies and actually to be fair lord of the rings originally wasn't necessarily going to be a big blockbuster movie i think it kind of built up steam which is why the academy didn't take it seriously until return of the king and then thought shit we need to give them something so let's just give them all of the fucking all of them. Well, it's still an interesting thing to have on your CV, isn't it? And I can imagine taking that kind of gamble as an actor, like, you're gonna be on fucking set in New Zealand for ages and ages. There's, like, three films. There were films in quick succession as well. They were released, like, yearly, so every year there was a new Lord of the Rings. So it was 2001, 2002, 2003 Christmas releases. So they started filming, I think, in 2000 for The Fellowship, and they were basically almost continuously filming right up until early 2003 is when they stopped filming and started doing post-production for Return of the King. And I, I, I told you I was going to talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> well played. <laughs> find a way one of my favourite facts is that I think Christopher Lee was like 79 when they started filming the first Lord of the Rings oh wow and by the time they did The Hobbit he was like nearly 90 I think by the time they filmed The Hobbit which he he was in as well which is absurd but he had a great work rate rest in peace legend oh yeah and aside from the kind of laboriousness of the schedule especially for an old guy like Christopher Lee the other thing is that it's not a kind of star movie I mean a lot of people improved their profile with it but they were taking a gamble they might not have done potentially if the films hadn't been as good or hadn't gone down as well because it has a huge ensemble cast it's never mm. going to be focused on one person but, yeah um, a, good a lot of people did improve their careers through it no i think it had a good balance of an ensemble cast sometimes you have an ensemble cast where there are names that are obviously massive massive names and it can kind of take away from the performance of the cast as a whole lord of the rings had hugo weaving and kate blanchett and obviously ian mckellen and christopher lee as the kind of the standout names and the rest were kind of semi well known or known i mean sean astin before lord of the rings like his biggest claim to fame was california man (laughs) (laughs) oh my god so apparently in 2015 Elijah Wood was in a film. No, he produced a film simply called The Boy. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's amazing. Somebody made a film about Corbin when he'd only become leader. <laughs> now, apparently it's a horror film, and the picture is of a young boy with horns coming out of it. Not horns, antlers. No, 
They look like antlers that are downturned coming out of his head anyway. <laughs> but frankly, that's neither here nor there. I think Elijah Wood has a strong filmography. Like, Wilfred obviously gave him that kind of cult TV show to have on his resume. Grand Piano, I thought was a really good little thriller where he's oh, a yeah, classical yeah. pianist who's got the guy in the crowd who wants to fucking snipe him. I really liked this film he did that was released on Netflix this year called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which is like a dark, backwards American comedy. And he was in a pretty decent film last year with Nicolas Cage called The Trust, where they played two corrupt cops. So yeah, he, as you say, Jude, he's used this huge franchise he's associated with to take risks to do some good stuff. And like, I think Daniel Radcliffe seems to be following a similar trajectory, which is promising. Yeah, I think you can do that when you start in a franchise that's made shitloads of fucking money and is up there. And you know you're going to get royalties from that for life. You could literally just retire. And it means mm. you're allowed to take more risks. And I think especially as a male actor, it gives you a lot more freedom than as a woman actor there's a lot of different pressure on women in film to mm. continue to put out stellar stuff. So I think Emma Watson yeah. has a completely different type of pressure on her than Daniel Radcliffe. She seems to take more kind of like Oscar Baity movies. I've seen a couple of the films that she's done post Harry Potter and they're not very good. She did this one on these American kids who basically went around robbing celebrities. Oh, <laughs> the <laughs> ring. The bling ring, which she has the most god-awful American accent in. <laughs> she's meant to be a valley girl, and it's like me doing a really bad impression of someone from California. So she's like, so like we like, they like totally robbed this house. And it's like, <laughs> I can't do it. Just, I just, thought Daniel Radcliffe's American accent was solid in Imperial. It, it was oh, good. Yeah. I, I thought it was good. I think he had some way to go with it. It sounded a little, mm. a little too clean. Like when yeah. Americans speak, they don't speak that cleanly. And you really have to get that informal tone in your accent, which I think might just be because he's just really posh and he can't, he can't do it. But then again, <laughs> Ben Barnes is very posh and he does very, very good American accent. But then again, his initial ones were not very good. So it may just be like a learning curve. Yeah, I think it's a smart route to take the Elijah Wood route. And it's good for him that he's not trying to do bigger things because I think independent movies where he doesn't really have to have that much range is probably the best thing for him to do. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add as a brief aside on the subject of Emma Watson, yeah. that probably my highlight of her post-Harry Potter oeuvre would be 2014's Noah, directed by Darren Aronofsky and his crack pipe. Like, <laughs> what the fuck was that film? He just shoehorns all these eco-messages into it. And, like, the Noah story suddenly has a bad guy, Tubal Cain, played by Ray Winston, who is a character in the Bible, but a very, very fucking marginal one. Definitely yeah, and isn't he from like, a while before the Noah thing? I'm not sure, but Ray Winston does his best kind of like, I still have my Cockney accent, but I am trying to speak in a little more <laughs> posh of a manner. <laughs> Actually, has anyone seen Ray Winston play Henry VIII? No. Oh. I watched it when I was really young. It confused me why the king was like, All right, geezer, how's it going? I call bloody, I'm fucking apples and pears. I was like, 
<laughs> just just some little me, like just some little like ten year old middle class kid, just like I feel like Ray Winston is the Cockney version of Sean Connery where you tell him to have a different accent and he's just gonna give you Cockney. Like Sean Connery in the Untouchables, where he's supposed to be Irish, but he's it's, it's not an Irish accent. <laughs> <laughs> He can't do it. Oh, fucking hell. Ray Winston in The Departed. Oh, he was... He's the Boston accent. (laughs) Yeah, Ray Winston's in Noah. He's the bad guy. There's a bad guy in Noah. And loads of God. And Emma Watson's subplot in it is she's Noah's daughter, and she gets knocked up by her boyfriend, who also gets on the ark. And then Noah's just like, this isn't right, because God doesn't want any more kids to be born, so when the baby's born, I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and so he just spends his whole film like threatening to like kill his daughter and her newborn child. Um, <laughs> and then at the end, God shows him a sign, and he's like, ah, this is Russell crow by the way who plays noah he's like ah oh, they were supposed to be born i see <laughs> yeah <laughs> i kind of enjoyed it and it's got all these weird like transformers type fucking like rock giants voiced by nick nolte <laughs> <laughs> sounds really interesting i might have to go and watch it now uh, I, yeah. I wasn't that enamored with it it was all right but i don't know it didn't really click with me i think i just found it very weird and that powered me through it because i'm not generally into kind of like big budget blockbusters but i watched yeah. it and i was just like something went seriously wrong here <laughs> this, is <just> kind of, <laughs> this is like an environmentalist propaganda movie on the level of an unbelievable truth which by the way there's a sequel coming out too soon i saw a trailer for it in the cinema the other day when i was seeing a documentary called dispossessed the great social housing swindle that's an odd film that was on the subject of emma watson so we were talking about fascists weren't we we were yes and yeah yeah i believe you like to hang out on certain online <laughs> spots a certain, certain online hubs of discussion and debate reasoned violent, debate very violent, very highly intellectual logical. yeah yes yeah, the other day i was browsing stormfront and <laughs> Wow. (laughs) There was about 20 pages of a forum thread where some people were saying, are Turkish people white? And other people were saying, no, of course not. One drop and all that. They're from Mongolia and shit. They're not white. And one person even went as far as saying Albanians aren't white. (laughs) It was interesting. It was was a trip. I haven't been... Stormfront since my documentary went out about seven years ago and there was a thread on my documentary on Stormfront. <laughs> uh, it's a testament to how grim my documentary was that it was actually probably one of the least racist threads <laughs> on But um, they were like, oh, it's just horrible how all these women are just being raped. And then at the end I went, naturally they are savages, so this is to be expected. And I was like, wow. <laughs> That's a take. You kind of expect that from them, I guess. Like, well done to the fascists for saying rape is bad. <laughs> rape is bad, however, they are savages, so no wonder they're doing it. All oh, right, yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's about as woke as these fucking guys are going to get. <laughs> Pretty much. I was just like, Do you know what? I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> 
my favourite Stormfront thread, and in fact the only one I can think of offhand, is about whether Shane McGowan from the Pogues is a white nationalist or not. (laughs) (laughs) So they keep quoting all these lyrics of his, which are blatantly anti-British, like from If I Should Fall From Grace With God, like, this land was always ours, it's the proud land of our fathers, it belongs to us and them, not for any of the others. And they're like, now this could be about British people, but I hope it's about immigrants. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in one of the threads I was looking at, they all just pronounced their love for System of a Down. (laughs) Okay. Surreal. Apparently they wrote some songs about the Armenian genocide, and since those people are Christian, that means that unlike the Holocaust, it was a big deal for these people. (laughs) (laughs) What I find funny is when these fash get kind of normy. So one guy, he's like, Shane Mack isn't a white nationalist, but he does make some damn good music. And Irish, (laughs) Irish Jay continues... Every year on Christmas Day, I have a few traditions. One of them is playing Fairy Tale of New York, the duet with the late, melodic, Kirsty McColl. Here are the lyrics to that cynical Christmas song. And then he just posts all the lyrics to Fairy Tale of New York. <laughs> and then says, God bless the Irish A, and posts a toast smiley, like two smiley faces toasting each other with some beer. <laughs> They don't really come to any agreement. A few people seem to be holding out hope that Shane McGowan is a white nationalist, but a fair few people come in and say, nah, he's not. However, the thread does descend into no less than two different beefs. Because somebody starts slagging off the British, somebody who's like sympathetic to the <laughs> Irish. It's just like, yeah, all these. Uh, British pricks being British or something and then this guy called Cormac who has an Enoch Powell avatar says uncanny how everything's the fault of the quote unquote Brits (laughs) Brits. <laughs> Even Sorry. when the, what they're talking about has nothing to do with immigration or racism, it's still about nationalism. <laughs> <laughs> Two of them get into a fight over some band called Celtic Dawn. They're like, until the Irish finally come out with a decent white power band instead of that sick, sad joke known as Celtic Dawn. And then this... <laughs> this person responds like did you ever know any of the guys in celtic dawn because if you did you would be sitting there insulting them i think he means you wouldn't be (laughs) he recorded that cd when they were very young we had reds attack every single pub celtic dawn ever played in they were ripped off by ari and ended up having to record the rest of the cd in their flat so please back off with the insults they fought hard for their beliefs and that's what counts (laughs) their beliefs and I respect them. <laughs> and those of us who've seen them play enjoyed them, and they were received when they were received when they played with Screwdriver. We all know that a lot of well-known bands who sing the fourteen words sing about their wives and children, yet shag any groupie in any country they play. So let's judge people on their actions, not on a CD they did as kids. <laughs> Celtic Dawn have a powerful advocate in War Maiden. (laughs) (laughs) Also, interestingly, this thread is from 2003. So this guy I guarantee you that that beef is still going on. (laughs) 
this guy's labeling of Celtic Dawn as a sick, sad joke actually predates Donald Trump's emergence. Celtic Dawn are a sad joke. Log off. I will never log off. (laughs) Sad. (laughs) Very sad and tragic. Very, very sad and tragic. I've jogged my memory talking about Ireland, but there's one bit in Imperium that initially didn't ring true for me, which was when Daniel Radcliffe is basically winning the trust of the kind of eloquent white power guy, the sort of I learned my fascism from books kind of dude who it turns out is planning the terrorist attack in the end. And he's sort of like, we need to do it like Combat 18, like the brown shirts, like the IRA. It's like, one of those (laughs) is not like the other. One of things is not like the other. Exactly. But apparently a lot of white nationalists, similar to the way I guess a lot of these people find some kinship in the Irish nationalist songs that I enjoy, they also apparently, some of them really like the IRA. There are a super popular yeah, with, like, uh, with some like, fash. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, when it's not about racism, it's just about nationalism. Not to denigrate the Irish independence movement or anything, but... <laughs> you better yeah, not. Well, I retweet Sinn Féin all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, But yeah, if there's any nationalist cause at all even if they're on the left doesn't matter the nazis will probably like that you know i guess it's because the ira were just kind of so effective in terms of what they did the uvf the uda terrible organizations committed appalling crimes pretty small time I'd say, like, you know. (laughs) So I can understand why, in terms of their tactics, some more terrorism-inclined white nationalists would be fans of the IRA. I think there's one more thing. So two episodes ago, we talked about Jay-Z's 444 album, which then, I think, had just come out, and I hadn't heard it yet because I can't torrent anything where I live, and I think at that point it was just a title exclusive. The CD hadn't come out yet, which I subsequently actually bought. Actually, I got it for my birthday. But a good friend of mine, I don't want to incriminate anyone, um, (laughs) hooked me up with the album, and I enjoyed it very much. And I thought last time we focused mostly on the anti-Semitic lyric. (laughs) Ever wonder why Jewish people own all the property in America? Credit. So I thought this time we should actually return to the album and give Jay-Z his dues. Uh, Okay, uh, that sounded uh, (laughs) unfortunate. (laughs) Give Jay-Z his dues and pay our respects to what I think is his best album since the Black Album. Oh, that's a strong claim. (laughs) Well, because I don't count Watch the Throne as uh, a straight Jay-Z album. And and I actually, I don't know, I might like this a bit more than Watch the Throne. I'm not sure. So what do you think, Jude? You don't think maybe it's quite the sort of stellar comeback? I mean, it's a good album. I just don't know if it was better than The Blueprint 3. I didn't like The Blueprint 3. I thought that was too... Sacrilege. I thought that was too poppy. It's got all those songs like Forever Young and stuff on it. Hey, 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 hey. Didn't do it for me. Calm down. Calm down. (laughs) Calm down. There will be no slander of the Jay-Z Forever Young. That song is very, very personal to me. I'm not having it. Not having it. That's kind of exemplary to me of that album. There was a lot of kind of crossovery kind my, of stuff. Um, my late uncle really, really loved that Forever Young. I've got so many videos of us. We used to put rap music on and just like get him to dance along to it, which was. <laughs> 
<laughs> he would like rap and sing along to Forever Young. So we had that at his funeral. And so I actually oh, haven't been wow. able to listen to it for like four years now. Okay. Yeah, Sorry, maybe I picked has, the wrong song to launch really hard, into. It has a personal significance to me. But even if it didn't, I would still think that that was actually quite a nice touching song by Jay-Z. Yeah, I quite liked the Blueprint 3, but I do agree that this is by far, I like it better than the one that he did in 2013. I can't remember. Magna, oh, Magna Carta Holy Grail. There was too much Justin Timberlake on that album for my life. It's too soft. Yeah, I thought this album was really good and I thought this album was basically a response to Beyonce's Lemonade. It was a really funny take on Twitter. I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was necessarily me. Someone basically said that Beyonce and Jay-Z went to couples therapy and their therapist basically managed to get Jay-Z to admit all his infidelity and then as punishment for it, allow Beyonce to release her album calling him a cheat and then have to release his album after hers where he also says, yes, I'm a cheat, I'm a dirtbag. And I want to find the name of that couple's therapist because clearly they're on their shit. But um, it's a departure from the kind of albums that he does which is always about kind of like masculinity and capitalism. Yeah. And, and, and I know people focused a lot on the, like the capitalist aspects of this, but I think that was to the detriment of like the vulnerability. Very personal. It was very personal. It was very vulnerable. It was very fragile. And... Honest, I don't expect socialism from Jay. Like, <laughs> I, di- I didn't find the capitalism put me off too much with this record. I think there's a tendency to look into the capitalist nature of rap a little bit too much. And I find it slightly disingenuous and a little bit dog whistly at the time because there's a very obvious reason why money is such a recurring yeah. thing. And if you just completely disregard that for some kind of ideological purity, you're going to run into a lot of fucking problems going down that road. So I, yeah. I tend to take those kind of criticisms on board anyway because it's like, if you don't understand rap, then you're never going to understand why money features in rap so much. Like, the whole thing mm. about status and symbol is really, really important in the culture. And if you don't understand that, you're, ne- you're never really going to connect with rap on that level anyway so you might as well just sit it out and just keep your opinions to yourself because you're like, <laughs> I mean you're right and he is bearing his soul on this album not just on there's obviously the title track 444 which is named after the time he woke up in some hotel room like 444 in the middle of the night and he was just racked with guilt for cheating on Beyonce and just scrawled down all these lyrics but even on the first track there's literally like a couple of bars of music and then he just comes straight in like kill Jay-Z yeah, and a couple yeah. of lines later he's like you know he shot his own brother it's just like I, I... one of the reasons why Watch the Throne was so ridiculous was the strength of their friendship was like in it like I think if you go back to the Black Album one of my favourite songs from the Black Album is Lucifer and what Kanye did with that sample was just ridiculous like he even says it himself he leaves it in the track and says Kanye you did it again you're a genius that's been one of the saddest things I think for both of their careers post Watch the Throne is watching how their friendship has actually kind of disintegrated slowly I mean like Jay-Z didn't even go to Kanye's wedding (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Kanye produced so many amazing tracks for Jay-Z yeah. back in the day. Right up to, I mean, obviously on Watch the Throne, but I think Blueprint 3 was the last Jay-Z solo album that featured a Kanye beat on it. But now, the last time they could even have been seen to have collaborated was on that Drake track last year, where Jay-Z showed up literally for two lines on the original version of Pop Style. And Jay-Z spat, like, literally two bars. Really, it sounded really perfunctory and disinterested. And then Kanye did a verse. And it was like originally billed as featuring the throne. And then I think Jay-Z was like, nah, 
No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) That was just before Kanye went off on those rants about Jay-Z on stage, which uh, Jay obviously mentions on the first track. Like, you gave him 20 million without blinking. He gave you 20 minutes on stage. Fuck, was he thinking? (laughs) (laughs) One thing I did notice on Kanye's last album, was it Life of Pablo, right? He sampled that Sister Nancy song, you know, Bam Bam. And then on this album, he's got a song called Bam, where Damien Marley is singing some of those lyrics. and. interesting killer as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sample sounded great on famous but i mean oh, this yeah. is a whole new way of hearing it if you can do disses by production which i mean i guess you can <laughs> i mean that was a fantastic one yeah just such a good album i think just so many tracks i really love on it i love the story of oj anti-semitic lyric aside obviously that so... lyric is not acceptable and you already discussed that in the previous episode but that song is so powerful it's so, so good, powerful yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite lines is like right at the beginning where it goes, OJ Simpson says he's not black. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not black, I'm OJ. I'm OJ. Okay. okay. He's great at leaving pauses, isn't yeah. he? So, that, so after that I'm not black. was great. And it's weird because I think maybe the fragility that was demanded for this album really allowed him to unchuckle to go back to reach deep inside for some of his best work mm. in a way that sometimes when you put on the bravado that Magna Carta kind of really lacks. But I thought this was some of the best stuff that he's done. Like, if you look at even some of his featuring bars, like, I always go back to Monsters just absurdly bad yeah it's so bad god yeah because i just sort of heard that song as a whole for years i was just like yeah no this is good and i never thought about jay-z's lyrics and then laura our co-host pointed out to me <laughs> what he fucking actually spat in that verse it's, and i was like he said what? <laughs> love like Come on. Yeah, yeah, you'll get this. Jay-Z's verse in Monster reminds me of that Lonely Island song, Incredible Things, where oh, they're yeah. just saying any random bullshit that comes into their head. <laughs> like, Speaking a of... dinosaur on skates! Speaking of Lonely Island, have you seen their movie? Popstar. Yes. <laughs> yes, what an we amazing it film. On third episode. <laughs> It's so good. It's, it's so, so fucking funny. Good. I watched it the other day and I actually almost pissed myself laughing. I'll never forget. I just I don't understand how, but the Lonely Island featuring Michael Bolton has just become one of my favorites <laughs> <laughs> of the twenty first century. That's the song I'm talking about. That's what Jay Z's Monsterverse reminds me of, but obviously <laughs> much less good. I mean, no, it's a good song, so it's still you can sort of nod your head to the fucking beat, but. <laughs> I'm so happy with this album. The story of Owen Jones, classic track. <laughs> I like the one with Frank Ocean. Like it's just it's just really kind of catchy. Like solipsistic, admit it, I see you there. Like ah, it's so good. It's so good. And there's just like the whole thing sounds so good. It's got such a coherent sound to it because No ID produced every track. It's not this kind of mishmash of, like, he's got this super producer in here to do some shit. He's uh, got this person to try another tactic at getting a big single. There's no, like, this is the single on it. Also, it's a really short album. It's, like, 36 minutes. That's really, really short for a 10-track album. Oh, and God, 
there's a song about his mum coming out as a lesbian as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like, she... That's a killer tune. That's yeah. so catchy with the Stevie Wonder sample. Yeah, um, it's a great album. It's a great album. I really enjoyed it. Moonlight is a great track. Like, it's La La Land. Even when we win, we still lose. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so sick. Did they not do the video to that as well quite recently? I'm not sure I've watched any of the videos apart from the story of OJ, which is an amazing video. Yeah, no, they recently did another video, and I think it is for La La Land, where it recasts friends but with an all-black cast. Okay. Yeah, which is like... How did they get away with all of them being white? (laughs) For one, but also... It, like it always it goes back to the origins in TV culture like there are articles that tell you that Friends was basically just a rip off of Living Single which was a black comedy drama with Queen Latifah <laughs> wow Friends basically ripped off that and blew up so it was a nice touch on both of those things there's been a lot of Friends talk on the timeline oh god no we, on, we don't need on that, that website <laughs> we, we, we don't we, yeah but it's too much it, like there, there's not enough like there are 10 seasons of friends I, I like episodes of friends i don't hate friends i watched every episode of friends at least six times because that's all e4 showed between 2005 oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's not enough in that show to have a hundred thread analysis no. <laughs> oh, why Jerry was the best boyfriend? I saw that. I was. Like, Come on. Yeah. I saw someone had done that thread. I was just like, oh fucking hell! Eric Garland's back on the amphetamines <laughs> and craft beer. I thought, like, <laughs> time for some game theory. I mean, like a lot of the points just didn't really stand up either. And I just thought, you know, you can watch too much of a show. I know this because I wrote five thousand words about Gilmore Girls. <laughs> like, write a medium blog and let people read it if they want to read it there's no need to i'll end up doing a hundred tweet threads about one tree hill if this is allowed do you start... reckon someone retweeted all a hundred of those tweets <laughs> I, would, I would have blocked it so far <laughs> <laughs> okay so we've established a few things i think i think we've had a good run this episode jay-z's back we're back it's good to be back and that I can crowbar a discussion about Lord of the Rings into pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah, it totally <laughs> happened. Jude was saying to me, like, we're having an hour-long discussion about Lord of the Rings, yeah. I was like, no, no. And then, <laughs> f- f- we didn't talk about it for an hour, but it happened. It, it happened. happened. So, I so, will uh, find fair, a way. Fair play, Jude. <laughs> oh, it's been awesome having you on the podcast Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. All the other guys send their regard and like cheers for listening to all our listeners. Bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I think I think we're Peace. good.
It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.